Love podcast episode six or seven. I don't remember now, but we've just started and it's been a while since we last talked to you, uh, dear listeners. And I want to start it with a little promotion of my conference. I'm organizing Data Love Conference. This is a conference for data engineers and data scientists. It will uh, take place on April 16th. As usual, uh, it's going to be online and tickets are donations only. So if you're interested, please go to datalove.confi.care and I will provide links uh, in the description. So today is a wonderful day in Seattle. It's really sunny here and I have a wonderful guest from Portland, Oregon, I guess. Yes. Um, yeah, so it's Scott Hanselman. And Scott is a man of many, many talents. And he has been in software uh, for money since 1992, I guess, where he, when he was uh, doing Visual Basic 3. Then he worked in many, many companies and finally landed uh, in Microsoft, at Microsoft in 2007, uh, where he is currently working as a partner program manager. He has a podcast, Hanselman Minutes, with almost 800 episodes. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. There is a, a pandemic, but I'm alive and I have a job and I can eat today. So I'm well blessed. <laughs> nice. So, you know, I did a research, like I wanted to talk about something special with you. And what's wonderful about your uh, podcasting and your public figure is that whatever I want to Google about you, like say Scott Hanselman, uh, C Sharp, of course, there will be a lot of uh different options to choose from. Scott Hanselman, uh, Visual Studio, Scott Hanselman, Haskell, Ocaml, Scala, <laughs> whatever. Then I was like, oh my God, this man talked about everything. I, I don't even know where to start. Like has been doing podcasts for what, 14 years? Uh, let me think about that. 18, to, I think we're coming up on 17 years. It's a pretty long time, 800, almost 800 now. Oh, my God. Well, the trick is, though, where do people put their energy? Where do you put your, your, your keystrokes? I always talk about this idea of, you know, you have a limited number of keystrokes left in your hands before you die. So where should those keystrokes go? Right. Let's say that you and I have a lovely podcast. And then afterwards, the audience sends an email. And they say, hey, Scott, you don't know me, but you know, I saw your podcast and it was great. Here's a question. And then I, maybe I spend 20 minutes writing them a lovely reply. And then they go, thanks. <laughs> so I just poured you know, 3,500 you know, keystrokes into an email to a stranger. And they said, thanks. Maybe they were a super important stranger and they're going to change the world. And I was at the at, I was there at the moment when the stranger like became a person who changed the world, but most likely they're just going to read the email and they're going to say thanks. But if I don't answer the email and instead I write a blog post, I do a video, I do a podcast, I do a pamphlet, a PDF, a free website, a read. If I put my keystrokes literally anywhere else in the world, except an email, then if only one other person sees it, I've doubled my keystrokes. 
a lot of people don't blog and they don't YouTube because they're like, well, no one will read my stuff. You know, I don't have the, you know, programming love podcast. No one's going to listen. <laughs> Only one other person needs to listen and you've doubled your power. So all I'm doing that's interesting is putting my keystrokes publicly, not privately. And then I will send them a link to the, to the blog rather than uh, sending them. So this is the same keystrokes. I just say, oh, great question. Because any good question is a gift. Like they've given you a gift because you, yes. oh my goodness, what a great question. It's free content. I'll write a blog post and I'll send them the link. Yeah, I think you talked about something similar in your uh, keynote, Scaling Yourself, um, mm -hmm. where you talked uh, yeah. exactly just, like. Yeah, Scaling Yourself, is, like people always say, how do you have so much time? You know, same time as you have. It's just, I don't answer email. <laughs> Nice. Okay. So, um, and you are working remotely, is that correct? I have worked remotely for Microsoft for 13 years from Portland, Oregon. And uh, now that everyone else is working remotely, they all call me for advice. And I say, well, we're not working remotely. We're quarantined. That's different. It's a totally different thing. I don't know anything about quarantine work. I can talk to you about remote work, but I don't know anything about being trapped in my house. Yeah, that's exactly what I where I wanted to start uh, our conversation about conferences and uh, public speaking and how is that different right now when we all are doing virtual conferences and uh, what's your experience like? How many uh, conferences did you uh, attend or did you speak at uh, during the pandemic? In January, I spoke at 18 events Wow! Uh, from conferences to um, user groups. Could be, could be a thousand people, could be 30 people. It, it doesn't really, you know, you don't really know because the conference organizer tells you and you look in the participants list and you say, oh, there's 135 people in this Zoom meeting. And then you do the meeting or maybe they use a tool like StreamYard and then they tell you later that a thousand people watched it or they put it on YouTube and then a thousand people watch it. So who knows how many people there were. Um, when three or four, it's usually a thousand people and then three or four people turn a camera on. So then you just look at those three people and, <laughs> and have a conversation yeah. with three people. It's, it's, it's interesting, the, the camera on, camera off relationship with these conferences makes it hard because very often you find yourself in your room, in the dark, alone at night, talking to strangers and if the cameras are not on, then you're really literally just talking to yourself. So I, I just did a conference for um, Indonesia. So, you know, I, I can tell my wife, oh, I'm going to give a talk in Indonesia, which is the kind of language that I would use if I was literally flying there. Yeah. And I would go downstairs in my socks and then <laughs> talk to myself in a dark room at three in the morning because of time zones. And then I go, yeah, how did the talk in Indonesia go? Oh, it was great. It was amazing. They loved it. I have no idea. You know, who, who knows how it went? I just know I didn't have to fly. But uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's a little bit depressing what you're saying. Um, I'm organizing conferences, online conferences, and we use this tool. It's called Spatial Chat. Hmm. And uh, there you're um, represented as a bubble. And yeah. you can move around and the audio is spatial. So mm -hmm. it allows yeah. you to join different groups and discuss uh, stuff with them. So that's uh, kind of hallway track 
Yes. Uh, for conferences. There's a lot of really cool exploration happening right now with 3D audio. Um, people get over, everyone's energy is different, right? So when you're at a conference, you need someone to give you energy as the, as a presenter. Yeah. The same thing applies if you're a teacher and uh, a teacher recently did kind of a, a light study on uh, how they felt as the presenter, how they felt as the teacher based on how many cameras came on. So there's Mm -hmm. 50 young people. This is a middle school teacher, 50 young people in a room. If all 50 cameras are on, the cognitive overload of having 50 squares made the teacher feel uncomfortable. They thought they wanted all the cameras on. That was wrong. Then they said, let's try all the cameras off. Then they felt lonely and sad. Yes. So then rather than sweating, rather than worrying about whether the camera should be on or off, they just let the kids do what they were going to do. Roughly a third of the kids turned the cameras on and the person found that they felt good as a teacher with between eight and 10 squares, enough that you're not overwhelmed with the information, but enough that you have some nodded heads and some smiling faces. Um, But things like spatial chat, there's also Rambly, which is being used by LA. There's about five different spatial chat things. I'm sure that we'll find one eventually. Um, the, the, The spatial chat that I have found right now isn't super sophisticated. It's usually just left ear or right ear. And as you walk away from the chat, it kind of goes quiet. I think it'll be interesting to see when we have three-dimensional spatial chat, because I actually had a, a doctor, a PhD in computer science on my uh, on my podcast named Kyla McMullen, and her PhD is in making objects appear in three-dimensional space in your head while only using two speakers. Oh, wow. I, I think I, I tried, I had this Oculus or something, and uh, on top of the uh, just audio, which was spatial, like three-dimensional, mm-hmm. I also had a video, and it was almost like real i was you know snorkeling somewhere with fishes and being in my own room (laughs) there's actually science for how they make those sounds sound in the xbox and dolby atmos dolby Mm -hmm. atmos for headphones is a thing it'll be interesting to see how uh, sites like spatial chat which are really only able to generate audio with the javascript apis will make us feel more closely. Uh, but then the, the real question is, why do we want that spatial chat? Like emotionally, what is it we need? What you're looking for is intimacy without intimacy, right? You want to feel connected to humans, but you want to do it safely. You want to do it safely where you feel a certain way and that they're not in your personal space, but you feel disconnected if they're not in your personal space. So you really have to think about safety and comfort and emotional and, you know, both emotional and physical safety. Uh, Another way to think about it is how do you feel when you have headphones on and you're on a call versus when you have your speakers open and you're, Mm -hmm. I prefer to walk around the room, have the speaker and the microphone be open and that the air is filled with voices other people prefer to wear headphones while they're in their conferences, but I find that too intimate because then strangers I don't know are whispering in my yeah, ear. Yeah, into your ears. Yeah, directly. like right now we're in a podcast and someone is walking, like you there, you're walking. I can see you. You're, see, now that feels weird. I've just told one of your <laughs> listeners that I can see them and I'm in their ear. 
And yeah. now we have nice podcasting mics and it's very warm. So there's like a radio voice thing happening. Um, I don't like that feeling. So then I change it to feel a certain way. Uh, I recently installed this television behind me. The listeners mm -hmm. can't see, but it's a very inexpensive TV, but it's mounted on the wall. This allows me to take my Zoom and my team calls on a TV. I just do an airplay or a, you know, a screen share, right? And then I can walk around and it makes me feel kinesthetically more like I'm in a conference room, which helps me connect. So I think the point that I'm trying to make is that whether it be a virtual conference or spatial chat or Zoom, not just the conference organizer, but the attendee needs to think about how does this space make me feel? How do I want it to make me feel? And how can I change my area, my space to feel better? If you just sit down in front of a laptop and put headphones on and listen to Zoom and you're like, man, Ollie has a great pot, you know, great conference. It's a wonderful conference. Then that's wonderful. But why not try plugging it into your TV? Maybe put it on an iPad and make, make breakfast and do it in the kitchen. Maybe put headphones on, maybe try without headphones. See how they makes you feel and listen to your body. And then you'll have a better connection to the conference. I noticed actually that a lot of people are cooking while watching our conferences. This is funny. Yeah. Also, I have a question about your microphone. So you said you're working uh, while at, at a meeting and uh, uh, which microphone do you use or how do you? Oh, okay. So what I'm doing is I'm holding up a Sennheiser lavalier microphone. Right now I'm talking to you on a podcasting microphone, but I have a lav and this is the same lav, a lapel mic that you pin to yourself and it, it is plugged into my computer. So you, you can either do that or there's a lovely thing called the Poly Voyager, which is a wireless Bluetooth headset with a long range. And what's nice about it is that this bar here, the, um, uh, the, the, the speaking microphone, when it's flipped up, it's muted. And when it's flipped down, it's not. Mm -hmm. So then you have a physical reminder about the mute button and you'll never accidentally talk. So you can just flip it down, say something and flip it up and it will, um, you know, it'll keep you safe psychologically so that you're not accidentally on, uh, not on mute. Yeah. I also use a Pica mic. Hmm. Uh, have you heard? No, it's, what's that? Uh, uh, wireless microphones and the quality is really good. So what I did, I built a um, um, light glass, light board. Uh, I did it myself, yeah, in my uh, uh, garage. So, hmm. and I can record talks in front of the light board and use this microphone because it uh, it doesn't have... I don't know how much you edit, delivered. but one of the things I think is fun though, like you can edit this out if you want, but your doorbell just rang and the dogs barked. Yes. I think that's wonderful. I see that you tried to mute it quickly, but that also speaks to another important thing about both conferences and meetings is normalizing being a human being, right? Like if I'm on this podcast right now with you and the doorbell rings, it could be the furnace person here to fix the furnace, or it could be a package. And that's okay. Before the pandemic, I think we tried to hide those things and try to keep a shine of professionalism on top of everything that we do. Like now your dog is running behind you. You might edit this out, but I think it's charming. And it reminds me that you're a human who has a house and a life and a doorbell. Yes. 
when my when my my vice president at my company who works who owns Visual Studio, the first time in an all hands meeting that her daughter ran in and jumped on her lap, and she let her daughter sit there while she continued the speech, was really special because it reminded me that oh wow she has like a life and a, you know a whole world and I've only ever seen her at work, and I think that's one of the things about the pandemic that is actually nice is it's reminded us that humans are humans. Yeah. Do you remember that video was uh, really, really popular where uh, at some like news, mm -hmm. uh, there were BBC man. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And that was like funny. And I think a lot of people uh, like consider it rather nice. And now it's uh, normalized. Mm -hmm. So normalizing I, gonna... being normal is yes. important. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, speaking of which, uh, you are still writing your book. Yeah. So that's another problem. I've got this, I've got written a bunch of books, but the one that I'm stuck on, I'm four chapters into a book on, um, on mixed marriages, being a geek married to a normal person. And uh, for some reason, it just gets deprioritized. And I, I end up moving book platforms. So it's like it's in Markdown, and then it's in Word. And then I move it again in HTML and it's on GitHub and then it's on LeanPub. Um, the only way it's going to happen is I'm going to have to take a month off, disappear and write this book. Um, for some reason, one of the things that you, that you have, I think you have the same thing as a creator. If you have an idea, it gets stuck in your chest and you have to get it out. And you, like, you can't think until you get this out, whether it be a video or a tweet or a TikTok or whatever. This book has been stuck in me for like five years, six years, and that's it's frustrating. I need to get it out of my body. Yeah, I was thinking uh, about that exact problem when I saw like uh, multiple videos where you promote the book and saying that uh, it's going to be out soon. It's going to be out soon. It's not going to be out soon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, in a few words, what is it about? What are you trying? What's the main message? The message is that people who are naturally programmers, meaning that regardless of your background, your gender, your country, tend, this is a theory, tend to think a certain way. They tend to want to fix things. And when in relationships, things don't always need to be fixed. Computers need to be fixed, and that's why we're good at fixing them but people don't usually need to be fixed. So you can have a bit of a um, savior complex where you want to like fix someone who you've met and swoop in and change them in a relationship. And typically those people just want you to listen. And the problem is that computer people don't usually listen to the computer. They just tell it what to do. So it's a conversation about two smart people in this case, myself and my wife, we've been married over 20 years. Um, she is smarter than I am. She has many degrees. She's had multiple careers. She speaks five languages. I am not any of those things, but I'm a computer person. So you can imagine that we would argue because she is smart and I think I'm smart and I think I have the answers and she just wants me to listen. So it's a discussion and a book, and I've actually got a bunch of blog posts about this, about how to solve problems when you are different people. When you are from the same uh, ground where you uh, know that you can talk to a person, you also know that you can debug them. 
<laughs> so the question is then, if you have two people, uh, you know, with mixed genders or mixed gender identities, you know, we can't make assumptions about someone based on whether they're a coder or they're not, or their background or not. But I think that different people are, different people are wired differently. And if you get two problem solvers together and they're like, oh, we just need to write this down and make a list and then this will be fixed. That'd be great. And I would love to see them have a, a lovely 50 year long relationship. But regardless of coders or not, or genders or not, I think that there is usually a fixer and the listener. Mm -hmm. And um, it doesn't matter who's, which side is which. I inevitably see those kind of things where someone's always trying to like, no, no, we just need a set of rules and that will allow us to fix things. And then the other person's like, no, we just need to talk this out. <laughs> you know, so that's just something that I'm yeah. always interested in exploring. And I'm very, very lucky to have a, uh, a wife who tolerates me and having, you know, I think that they're having 20, I'm proud of having been married for 20 years. Um, I, 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 I understand. I, I can't be an expert on relationships. I can only be an expert on my relationship. Yeah, of course. Of course. Well, um, let's move a little bit our discussion to a technical thing. Mm -hmm. So in one of the uh, our previous episodes, we talked to Martin Kleppen. Um, he is an author of uh, Data Intensive Applications book if you heard about that, but uh, anyway, it's a very popular book and uh, he's currently doing a research on CRDTs. Uh, a quick reminder, CRDT is the conflict-free replicate data, data, data types. And um, we were discussing uh, some environments where uh, you can collaborate on the document together and how it can be implemented. Also, uh, so that was a while ago, but JetBrains recently, like a week ago, or maybe even less, uh, released a better ver version of uh, Code With Me plugin. Uh, and uh, it's a new service for remote pair programming and collaborative development. It now supports video and voice calls. Um, and before our episode, I asked you if you're familiar with that, but you said no. So uh, it's not a big deal. Uh, you can like, uh, you quickly checked it out. And uh, I wanted to ask, is there anything similar for Visual Studio? Because you're an expert in Visual Studio. <laughs> so the um, many years ago, there was a tool that was called Etherpad that was before Google Docs and before all of the different kind of collaborative things that we saw. And then Google Docs kind of perfected it and allowed people to share cursors, putting names on cursors and to see what someone else was doing and someone else was typing. Then we saw the rise of screen sharing with Skype and Teams and Zoom. Screen sharing is very simplistic. It is a, um, a shotgun approach or a hammer approach where uh, we have one tool, we have a hammer, we're gonna share pixels. Can you see what I'm seeing? But then we started to see 4K monitors. And right now I'm on uh, three 4K monitors. And you know, if I wanted to share my screen to you, I could share 
2000 something pixels by 2000 something pixels. And that's, a, that's asking a lot of you. That's asking a lot of me. I don't know whether you're on a laptop or a small screen. Throwing pixels across the wire to collaborate isn't awesome. But if you take the slider bar all the way to the other side, Google Docs is just cursors and text. And there's actually a famous um, demo that was called the mother of all demos that was done in the late 50s. And it was showing effectively Google Docs, believe it or not, in 1950 in black and white. It was the first demonstration of a mouse. It was collaborative editing. So we've been trying to solve the collaborative editing issue for uh, 70 plus years. Um, Amanda Silver and the team at, um, at Microsoft created this thing uh, called Visual Studio Live Share, which is free and it's built into both Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code. So for those folks that are using Visual Studio Code, it's just an extension and it doesn't share any pixels, but it also doesn't just simply allow you to share cursors, it shares context. So for example, I'm assuming that you're not a .NET or a C-sharp developer. You're probably a different language, right? Yeah, I'm a Scala developer. Okay, so you Scala. I don't have Scala on my machine. But let's say that we're colleagues and I want a little question help on an algorithm and I call you and I say, hey, can you help me with this C-sharp thing? I'm confused about this hash map. You don't want to install .NET. It's a whole thing. I don't want to throw pixels at you because your monitors are different shape than my monitors. So instead, I want you to connect to my Visual Studio, my instance, with the editor of your choice, with the theme of your choice, with the font of your choice. And I want your solution explorer, that files tab on the side there, to see my file system so that you can navigate around my code and walk around my code. I want to select the code. I want to select like lines 10 to 20. And then you see the text selected on your side. But again, your editor, your font, if you are differently abled, maybe you're using a screen reader, all of the things that you did to make your fonts and your high contrast to work for you, none of those things work if you share pixels. So we're gonna share context. Yeah. Then if you start typing and you say var i equals whatever and you hit dot and then it does you know, IntelliSense, it pops down the autocomplete Dropbox. Well, you don't have .NET installed. So where's all that context come from? It's a remoted web service. My machine will do all the work to give you all the context. So we're sharing code context, not uh, pixels. <clears throat> That's now showing up in other IDEs like IntelliJ and others. So I think that just like we saw that you mentioned spatial chat and I said, oh, that's great. There's like six people trying to solve the spatial chat issue. Now we're trying to solve the uh, sharing code and context issue, which I think is really cool. That was a long answer, but it was a complete answer. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, actually really nice. That uh, with this code with me, uh, you have to download a lightweight uh, IntelliJ idea, uh, so you don't have to install everything on your machine, but you have to download the uh, lightweight uh, service, lightweight version of IntelliJ. And mm -hmm. they also implemented voice calls and video calls inside IDE. What do you think about it? Um, I think that's totally reasonable. That's a reasonable way to implement it. Oh, really? I thought like you would jump on a call on Discord, Zoom, Skype. Teams, whatever, and then discuss the code. Well, and... so the the the, que the 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 question is, where does the the I'm getting a little bit theoretical here. Where mm -hmm. does the linguistic back channel happen? 
Like how many times have you been on a call and something didn't work well? So you said, just mute your mic and call my cell. We've all done that. We've all yes. been on a video yeah. call where something weird went wrong. And you said, just mute and just mute. And then suddenly you and I are on a phone call on speakerphone. You've muted your Zoom and I've muted my Zoom. That happens because these, this medium that we're speaking in right now is imperfect. So there's lots of times where one linguistic back channel, the audio one, the video one doesn't provide value, or um, I don't have one that's shared. I use Zoom, you use Team, they use Jitsi. We end up falling back to things like the, the phone. Even Live Share has a Live Share pack, which includes an audio mechanism. Mm. And we're finding with tools like WebRTC, and standardization of Canvas and how we talk to the microphone and um, audio in the browser, that it's like 10 lines of code to write Zoom in the browser, right? There's things like Zencaster that does podcasting that now include yeah. video conferencing. Now, oh, not... really? I didn't know about oh, that. Yeah. This whole conversation we could have right now, we could do on Zencaster and it would show it up in a video. My, I would lo locally record a WAV file yeah. and a video file. You would as well. And then it combines them in the cloud. Also, um, Riverside FM, just as you said, spatial chat, and there's six different competitors. Yeah. There's Zencaster and there's six different competitors. Yeah. I knew how about is that Zencaster, possible, but I didn't know about the video. Yeah. So how is that possible? Web standards, open web standards. So visual studio code written entirely in TypeScript. It's an electron app. It's the biggest, most interesting, most complicated electron app can leverage web standards for things like real-time audio. So the idea is we can collaborate. Why not? We don't need, you know, if it's, if it's one click, I don't need to install Teams or whatever to just do a chat. It's the same as if I decided to share my Visual Studio code with you and then call yourself. That's my opinion. Yeah, interesting view because for me, it was like, oh my God, it's IDE. Why, why does it need to have all these tools? What's next? Like um tables they already have tables actually and i believe visual studio to like uh some plugin for dbs where you can look at the uh content as if it was excel yeah well i think the point is that it's about options and about choices if this call failed there are no less than 20 different ways you and i could reconnect and continue this call so rather than thinking about like, why is this even needed? It's not needed until it's needed. So, so that's one of the great things about, uh, well, the pandemic sucks and it's horrible, but we are innovating because of necessity. And we're also making as many things happen as possible. Another thing I think about actually, if I may, bandwidth. I do a lot mm -hmm. of work uh, in developing countries, overseas, people with tethered phones, people who don't have a reliable like right now, you and I are on a Zoom call and I'm pushing 4.5 megabits a second. So you're getting high definition video of me. 4.5 megabits a second is a lot. Um, we'd have to turn the video off to make this audio only. And if I was going to do screen sharing, there'd be another stream. If I had a low fidelity, you know, 128K BPS audio stream plus just text, you and I could have a very lovely collaborative conversation over Visual Studio Code with no other tools over an incredibly low bandwidth connection. So that's another thing to think about for those of us who are not blessed with uh, high, high bandwidth connections. 
Yeah, you know, at my conferences, we're streaming and uh, we probably, I don't know, I, ha I have to first world problem. We wanted to uh, give as much as, as uh, like the best quality we could. Uh, so we were thinking about like 4K or whatever, uh, 1080p is already good enough uh, for things like that. But then we had a lot of requests. Our conferences are almost free or they like it's donation. We have promo codes for if you cannot afford it, if you're a student, if you whatever, if you credit card doesn't work, we give it for free. So there were requests from people saying, hey could you uh please set the minimum quality uh to the lowest mm -hmm. uh possible because i'm watching that from my uh whatever internet from like nigeria or mm -hmm. somewhere and uh, i don't remember exactly where, where that person was and uh and it, it wasn't even single request like people ask for uh lower quality of video because it's easier for them to watch uh, because of their internet connection. Yeah, we're putting a lot of work into offline scenarios. Right now, I'm currently at my job working on an education pack for C-sharp because even if I wanted to get you to install it, you'd have to install Visual Studio Code, the compiler, the, you know, the docs, you know, like the extension for Visual Studio Code. It's about five, four or five things. Mm -hmm. But if you're a university professor or someone overseas on a low bandwidth connection, you might just want to pass around a USB key and say, here's everything that you need. So I'm going to make one executable for, for Mac, for Windows, and go, boom, this is the education pack. We've got one now for Java. We've got one now for Python. It installs everything that you need to be successful. Visual Studio Code plus Python plus the extensions. We're going to do that for .NET, Java, and Python. And that's mm -hmm. all because we, we, the Western world, assumes that everybody else doesn't have a data cap. Yes, exactly. That's where I felt this, like, that we're Western-centric. And uh, I was like, apologies. And we did uh, change our quality uh, gap so that people would be able to watch the conference. Mm -hmm. That's good. And that's, that's actually the definition of inclusion, isn't it? It is. All right, on this uh, wonderful note, I think uh, we're going uh, to wrap up our episode. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, Scott. I appreciate you having me on the show and I wish you all the success. You said this is show five or six? Yes. That's great. I remember my, my fourth or fifth show. One of the things that I love about podcasting and I, what I hope you like as well, is if you email a random person and you say, hi, random internet person, will you have coffee with me? I want to pick your brain. You will only offend and they will be like, I don't know you. I'm not going to pick your brain. But if you invite them on your podcast, not only will you make lovely connections, but then other people will be able to hear the conversation. And then you build an archive of hundreds of lovely conversations. You can turn them into transcripts. They can be searchable. So I'm yeah. happy to be one of your top, your first 10 uh, Thank episodes. you.